bit of it before. That's right. So welcome, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. This is part two of a discussion on the Chinese Revolution. And we're just going to pick right up where we left off before. At the end of the last uh, discussion, we were talking about the Comintern and disputes within the Comintern on how the international movement should approach and advise the revolution in China. And as with so many other situations uh, in the working class movement of the 20th century, everything that went wrong is attributed to to Stalin, and he's all constantly accused of having tried to crush or misdirect uh, every movement. Um, but there were, in fact, disputes between Trotskyites and um, the Comintern uh, under the guidance of the Bolsheviks on the question of the revolution in China. So the question really is, was Mao's line different from the line of the Comintern? And I think, Hrapal, you were talking about that last time we met. No, Mao's line was not different from the Comintern, and Comintern's line was not different from Mao's line. Um, Comintern didn't run, nor did Stalin, revolution on the telegraph. What the Comintern did was actually gave a general analysis. Comintern's analysis that the Chinese revolution, its character was anti-feudal, anti-imperialist was correct, and that was followed by the Communist Party of China. Of course, at the beginning, the question was whether the uh, Communist Party of China should have any alliance with the Comintern. Comintern. Now, sorry, Comintern. But now, Trotsky oppo oppo opposed it because he said you can have no alliance with, 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 the, with the bourgeoisie. That really flows from his theory of permanent revolution, which has always, always come in the way of Trotsky being able to think, think, think straight. Uh, Whereas the common turn was of the view that it is very essential to have this, this uh, alliance, particularly at that time um, when, when Sun Yat-sen was alive, it had the, uh, the Kuomintang had three very basic principles. One was alliance with the Soviet Union, second alliance with the Communist Party of China, and thirdly, helping the workers and peasants. Uh, you could not possibly obje object to that. Anyway, the alliance was even, even eventually uh, concluded. And the result of that was the Ch Chinese Communist Party being a party of very, very few people became a much larger organiza organization with five or 6,000 members. It may not sound a lot, but when you start from a few, five or 6,000 is a lot. It got the opportunity to work in the army. It got the opportunity to propagate its views openly and mobilize the peasants in the countryside and work workers in the in the towns. So there was tremendous gain gains that were made. But then, of course, came the 12th of April coup by Chiang Kai-shek after the death of Sun Yat-sen, where communists were slaughtered in their th thousands, and the Chinese Communist Party was driven from the towns into the mountainous, mountainous area of Jingengshan and established a, a, a base there. But the trouble with Trotskyism is that it actually ignores three very basic, basic principles. One is that a revolution and the Revolutionary Party must take into account the nationally peculiar conditions of its own country. 
the general principles will not help you if you don't take into account the, the peculiar characteristics of the country concerned. Trotsky was opposed to an alliance with the bourgeoisie because he couldn't have an alliance with the bourgeoisie because there was no alliance with the bourgeoisie in, the, in, in Russia. However, Russia was an imperialist country. Its bourgeoisie was an imperialist bourgeoisie, whereas the bourgeoisie of China, small though it was, was bourgeoisie of an oppressed country where there was a possibility of making an alliance. And, and no matter how temporary it is, it would, it would suit the Communist Party. Secondly, it ignored the technical principle that uh, the, part, the party of the proletariat must take advantage of every opportunity presented to it of making an alliance with uh, a bourgeois party which gave it the chance to expand, no matter how unstable, how vacillating, and how temporarily inclined the bourgeoisie was to have such an alliance. And thirdly, in the final analysis, the learning comes not only from books, books are very important, but also from practical experience. And the Trotskyites ignored all these. And when, of course, Chiang Kai-shek staged his coup, they blamed everything on the Comintern. They blamed everything Stalin. This was not the case. In fact, this had only happened because the leadership of the Communist Party of China, then headed by Chen Tu Xiu, followed a right-wing policy of just merging with the Comintern, not arming the workers and peasants, not defending their rights for better li living conditions, not maintaining a properly independent exi existence, and not putting enough emphasis on military affairs and on the question of uh, having, having an armed force. And this was in violation of the instructions of, of, of the Comintern. And then the final thing is, even if the Chinese Communist Party followed correct line, it doesn't mean that it will win. If you follow an incorrect line, you can never win. But if you follow correct line, you, you may still not win because the other side at that time proved to be far stronger, which was the case in China. The strength of the Kuomintang army at that time was more than 2 million. And therefore it was in a position to crush the Chinese, Chinese communists and force them in, 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 into the mount, mountainous area. So really these, these were the disputes. And even then when the Chiang Kai-shek betrayed the revolution. For a few months, the revolutionary center led by the petty bourgeoisie established itself in the, in the city of Wuhan. And the Communist Party made an alliance with the Wuhan coming time. And while Zinoviev and Trotsky, not advocating the withdrawal of the, of the, of the, of the Communist Party, uh, uh, from, from, from this, this alliance, wanted to establish Soviets. Now, Soviets are organs of uprising. These are organs for overthrowing an existing power. Now, you can't have an alliance with a power that you're trying to overthrow at the same time. There may be different stages of doing so, but you can't do the same thing at the same time. It's like sitting on the branch of a tree and going with a saw, cutting off that branch. And you know the result of that would be physically, you drop down with a big thump, okay? 
And that's what would have happened to the Communist Party of China. But during the Wuhan period, you know, these are revolutionary times when things move very fast. The Chinese Communist Party became a party of 50,000 from being insignificant in the revolutionary movement. It became the hegemon of, of, the, of the Chinese revolution and was to stay the hegemon of the Chinese revolution throughout the years of, of, of the agrarian war, throughout the years of war of resistance against Japan, and again throughout the years of the civil war that Chiang Kai-shek launched after the defeat of Japan in 1946, right after the liberation of China. And of course, it continues to be a hegemon today. And that, that was something of a remarkable achievement, what was done, but it was only done by following the correct policy. If anybody doesn't believe us, there was a very close comrade of, of, of Mao Zedong. He was very, very close to, to Mao Zedong, except for the last few months of, months of his life, Chen Pota. He wrote a very enlightening pamphlet, Stalin and the Chinese Revolution, in which he says that Stalin's analysis was correct, and if it wasn't followed, it was because of the failure of our own right-wing leadership, who even tried to hide Stalin's analysis from, from, the, from the Communist Party. And Chen Tuxiu, you, you remember, then once he was defeated in the Chinese Communist Party, tried to launch launching Trotskyite movement. He failed in that. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Caleb, you correct me, he ended up by spending the rest of his life in Canada as an exile. Is that right? I don't, I don't know. We don't know. <laughs> Caleb, do you want to talk any more about um, the kind of Trotskyist approach to the Chinese Revolution before we move on there? Well, one thing I did want to reference um, is one of the most common Trotskyite smears against the Chinese Revolution is that uh, that it because it's a block of four classes, because the People's Republic uh, was created on a block of four classes, uh, because it was founded as a people's democracy, uh, that it is therefore not a socialist country. It is not a proletarian dictatorship. Um, and I think that I mean, this is a form of dogmatism where they're saying because it's not simply the rule of the industrial proletariat, it's not a socialist society. Um, you know, Frederick Engels in Socialism, Utopian and Scientific makes clear that the proletariat takes power on behalf of all of society. And the proletariat is the majority in, in capitalism, but in societies that are held back in, in impoverishment by imperialism and prevented from uh, reaching the stage of full capitalist development, uh, the, the Communist Party will lead a, a coalition of different classes, but led by proletarian ideology, uh, is my understanding. But I'd be curious to hear what, what Harpal has to say in response to that common smear that I often hear. They'll say, look at the Chinese flag, those different stars, they stand for different classes. So that shows it's not a socialist society because it's not a proletarian, not a purely proletarian dictatorship. It's one of the, so, uh, one of the people's democracies that was formed in the aftermath of the Second World War. And, you know, so I, I'd be curious to hear Harpal refute that point. It's, 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 it's basically, first of all, neither the commenter, nor Stalin, nor Mao Zedong, nor anybody ever said that the Chinese revolution at that time was that the so, so, socialist state. They said it was a democratic revolution. In the olden terminology, we used to say bourgeois democratic. But the Chinese called it a people's democratic uh, revolution. It was a revolution of the people, but with this difference led by the proletariat. Proletariat was the guiding light in, in that revolution. It provided the leadership. 
the peasantry by itself cannot achieve much unless some leadership is provided. That leadership could either be provided by the bourgeoisie in China or by the proletariat. The bourgeoisie in China was very weak and proved weak and was not able to provide that leadership. That leadership vacuum was filled by the Communist Party of China. So when the Chinese People's Republic was established, it was the democratic dictatorship of the proletariat and the peasantry led by the proletariat. It's only after a number of years of constructive work that it passed on to the, to the socialist stage. And the Chinese said, it's become a socialist state. Of course, the name of China has not changed. It's still the People's Republic of China. You know, but these are historic, historic, historical things. And, you know, it became, according to the Trotskyites, even the Russian Revolution ceased to be proletarian revolution once Trotsky was expelled. So the, <laughs> so the whole thing depended just on one individual, whether it was a dictatorship of, of the proletariat or, or the bourgeoisie. They, they said socialism could not be built in a single country, and yet they wanted to assume the leadership of, of, of that country where no socialism could, 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 could be built and were to continuously accuse Stalin of not hastening the development of socialism. The very socialism, they said, could not be built because it could not be built in a single country. So, you know, Trotskyites don't really particularly have solid ground for making these, these, these accusations, uh, which they, I mean, Trotskyites say so many things and they just shoot at the mouth without thinking. By the law of statistical averages, every now and then they're right, right? But that is just by accident. It's not because it's a well thought out statement that they've, they've, they've made. They just learned a few formulas, which they teach their followers who come to distribute leaflets for a few years and sell papers. And then they get fed up because there's no way around. There's no way out and they leave. So all they breed is skepticism and cynicism and basically preaching an ideology which is counter-revolutionary, but wrapped in ultra-revolutionary terminology. That is the way they, 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 they function. One of your compatriots wrote a book, I can't remember his name, you know, le le left in words, right in, right in essence or right in deeds. Yeah, Carl Davidson. Carl Davidson wrote that book, yeah. Uh, what, what, Davidson? Carl Davidson. Yeah. Yeah. So if we um, move can I, on. Can I make one more comment on, on this point? Yeah. Um, well, the, the book you referenced is by Carl Davidson. It was a leader of the October League uh, during the 1970s, which was one of the uh, the Marxist-Leninist formations that came out of the new communist movement. Um, and I do recommend it. It's an interesting resource, in particularly in reference to the Chinese Revolution and, and the Trotskyite line on it. Um, but one thing that, I, that strikes me as kind of a continuity and a, and, a, and a similarity that you can find between both Stalin and Mao uh, is is their ability to organize people. Uh, they were mass organizers. And this concept that you get from the Little Red Book, the concept of the mass line, uh, that you go from the masses to the masses. The revolutionaries are the fish and the masses are the water. Uh, it's very similar to, you know, Stalin and his mass organizing style. Um, and, that you know, Stalin... 
he was the guy, he was the editor of Pravda, which was the, uh, the daily, you know, agitational newspaper, the Bolsheviks. And if you read Stalin's writings on the military question, uh, you know, you know, Trotsky wants to, to, you know, to make all the factories into centers of the military and just kind of draft everyone in the military and make them working in the factory, their military service. And Stalin's saying, that's not going to work. You have to find ways to win workers to the line and win them to be productive. And that, that military methods might be good in, in a combat situation, but you can't apply them in general life or we're going to lose the broad masses of, of the people of, of the Soviet Union. And that, that both Stalin and Mao, they had an ability to organize people and work with people that was very, very effective. Um, and that that was kind of what distinguished them from the Trotskyites. And the Trotskyites kind of represent this kind of petty bourgeois academic strand of Marxism. Uh, and and that that Stalin and Mao were both people that were you know they were among the people uh, you know they you know Mao grew up in in the countryside Stalin was from Georgia he wasn't even Russian he was from a, from a, a village in Georgia and that both of them had this kind of ability to communicate ideas to people to organize people etc and I, I'd be curious if you think that 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 factor that that charisma that ability to organize people that being in touch with average people that they had if that was something that uh, that kind of distinguishes them from the Trotskyites. But, you know, by its very nature, a revolution is made by the masses. If you don't have the masses, you don't make a revolution. Because if, if you don't believe in that, you have to believe in what the Kautskyites were saying about the Bolshevik revolution. It was a coup by the Bolsheviks. A few of them just seized power because they proved to be more determined and more organized and more devious than, 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 than their opponents. And they just outwitted everybody and they assumed power. The whole essence of the Russian Revolution was it was a revolution of the vast mass of proletarian and it very soon spread then to the countryside. It only spread to the countryside because the Bolsheviks were able to give the right leadership as to what was necessary, land to the peasantry. This had been an age-long and centuries-old demand of the peasantry who were starved of land, who were suffering under the heavy taxation and burden of having to pay for the land that they, 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 they cultivated. So Bolsheviks overnight were able to issue a decree, the land, you know, belonged to, 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 the, to the peasantry, along with its water resources, along with its forests and everything, it belonged to the peasantry. Something the bourgeoisie was not able to do, even after the February re revolution. And in fact, one of the things that led to the defeat of the February revolution was, its failure to grant the peasantry what the, what the peasantry needed. Secondly, they were the ones who were able to give the slogan, peace. Russian were tired of fighting imperialist war. They had lost a lot of people and to no, 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 no good effect. So it was one of the slogans that there should be peace. But once the bourgeoisie had come to power in Russia after the February revolution, they intensified the war because they made commitments to Anglo-American imperialism that they'll continue the war and, and French imperialism that they'll continue the war. And who was fighting in the Russian army on behalf of Russia? The peasants in uniforms. They were starved of land. They were being forced to fight something that they, they, did, did, they didn't want, want, want to do. So by giving these slogans that, you know, Peace, bread, and finally liberty. Getting rid of czarism, getting rid of autocracy, 
these three slogans mobilized the people. They were not just slogans. These were slogans which were well meant with the Bolsheviks had every intention of carrying out and did in practice carry out. And that's really what made the difference. And the Russian Revolution was not made by Lenin and Bolsheviks. They provided the leadership. It was made by the Russian people with the proletariat at, at, at their head. That, that is it, what, what it was. There could be no other way. The, the, the other idea of revolution is a kind of Blanquist notion that a few determined people will come and take over the town hall or, or, or the National Assembly building, etc., and take the tele telegraph office and everything will be fine. It doesn't work out like that. You see, really, um, with Trotskyism, with Trotsky himself, it runs like a, a, a kind of letters through a stick of rock, doesn't it? This this theme all the way through, this kind of um, overbelief in himself or his own ideas and total lack of faith in, in fact, disdain for the masses, whether it's the poor peasants who are just so backward, there's no point even thinking about them, or, you know, even the workers who, okay, the workers will make the revolution, but we'll have to just tell them what to do because they're too stupid to think for themselves, you know. Actually, he wants he wants freedom of thought and expression for himself. He shouldn't be under anyone's discipline. Everybody else should be under the tightest control discipline possible. You know, the idea of the of the leadership also submitting to discipline was one that Trotsky, you know, never could reconcile himself with. And you you see that in Trotskyism, the kind of people who go for it and the way that Trotskyist organizations operate, you know, it's discipline for everyone except me, isn't it? And God, I, my genius has to be recognized. Stalin, Stalin, Stalin had a lovely and graphic description of them. He said, call them the revolutionaries of the Parisian and Viennese cafe type uh, who sat there hatching plots and nothing to do with, with the Russian people. But he said Lenin was very different. He may have been in Paris, he may have been in Vienna, he may have been a lot of other people because the exile forced him, forced him to spend more than 10 years abroad. But he was constantly in touch with the Russian masses, constantly in touch with the communists in Russia and, 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 and conducting the work of organizing them for leading the revolution in Russia. Shall we um, move on a little bit to some questions of the development of the Chinese revolution? So um, really you, you referred there, Hapar, to the agrarian revolution. Uh, you know, the, the, the revolutionary wars, of, if, if you like, went on for a long time in China. You know, you're talking probably from um, 1927 all the way up to 1949. So there's various kind of stages that are recognized within that. And the first one, the agrarian revolution, you know, covers quite a long period, doesn't it? So what, how did the communists kind of make use of this period to develop their forces? What were they doing that was different from what the nationalist Kuomintang forces were doing during this period? Well, it's very difficult to periodize these things. But if there is to be periodization, uh, then the agrarian revolution lasts from 1927 to 1937. And in these 10 years, the communists were very, very successful. They were successful because they applied the right kind of tactics and right kind of policy. First of all, as had been the experience in Europe and especially of the Russian Revolution, the revolution was centered around towns. But after the communists had been annihilated and driven out of towns, you know, Shanghai, Beijing, etc., 
then they were in the countryside. So they had to actually work in the countryside and mobilize the, the, the peasantry for the revolution. And they, because they were weak, they could not involve themselves in positional warfare against Chiang Kai-shek's forces. They had to adopt the tactic of guerrilla warfare. Guerrilla warfare was not invented by the Chinese. It has been practiced over a long period of time, especially in Europe during the Peninsular War against Napoleon in, 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 in Spain. So their idea was to, to develop and develop guerrilla tactics like when the enemy attacks, we retreat. When the enemy rests, we harass. When the enemy retreats, we attack. You know, they had specific way of dealing with their opponents who were far more powerful, both in terms of numerical strength, as well as in terms of armaments. So they defeated them in battles. And very often, Chiang Kai-shek's forces were supplied by the Americans. So when the Chinese Communist Party in various battles defeated the forces of Chiang Kai-shek, they also captured their weapons. So the American imperialism can be truly able to claim credit for the Chinese revolution because they supplied arms to it via the, 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 the Kuomintang. So the Chinese revolution followed a different path and Mao Zedong's writings on the military are worth a read every now and then to remind yourself how they actually are organized. And of course, when they went into the countryside, they had policies, first of all, distributing land. Now that is something very close to the heart of the, of the peasantry. The peasantry then understood the communists are our people. They're looking after our interests. They became enthusiastic about the communist party and its army, the People's Liberation Army. They confiscated grain from the rich peasantry, rich peasantry as well as from the landed gentry and distributed among the poor. They put an end to uh, the custom of having to buy your bride. You didn't, you know, you had to purchase women before that. They they put an end, end to it. They put an end to various superstitions and giving gifts uh, uh, on various 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 occasions, and relieve the peasantry of those burdens. Peasantry in those areas didn't have to pay a great deal of rental to, to for, for, for cult, cultivating their, their, land, their, their land. Then they, they did, uh, and the People's Liberation Army, Army was not just a fighting force, it was also a propaganda force. It carried the ideals and ideas of the Communist Party of China into the countryside. Tremendous emphasis was put on ideological education. Now, if we come to Western Europe with a highly literate population, in a country, for example, like Britain, I'll just talk about Britain, there is such a lack of political and ideological education and, and, and consciousness. And yet we find people who say, you mustn't do too much of it, just in case, you know, you frighten people with ideology or consciousness. It really reminds me of Lenin saying, wishing mourners at a funeral procession many happy returns of the day. You know, it's really the, the British proletariat is backward in its ideological orientation and understanding. And there are still people who say you mustn't frighten them by bringing 
communism to them. On the contrary, they need communism as much as a thirsty person needs water. And we must take it to them. We, they need communism. The proletariat needs communism as much as humanity needs air to breathe, water to drink. It's extremely important. The Chinese Communist Party was able to do it even in the midst of battles, horrendous battles. Mao Zedong would go around giving lectures on contradiction, on practice, on dialectical materialism. And they were very cute people. They came from a backward country, but politically they became very advanced because they realized the importance of revolutionary theory. As Lenin never failed to emphasize, without a revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement. And just as the Russians had done, the Chinese brought revolutionary theory to the masses. Ever since they formed the Communist Party in 1921 in the wake of the October Revolution, they never looked back. They realized the, 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 the importance of this. And so the, 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 this, these were the reasons for the success of the Communist Party that actually, and of course, most important of all, the peasants could feel in the areas that were liberated and there were Soviet republics established in various areas controlled by the Communist Party. The people could see they had become the masters of their own territory. They had become rulers of the territory and they felt importance that they never had done for several millennia. So this, this is the secret to the success of the Chinese comrades. Sure. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things that are really important about all of this. Um, one of the first things is to point out that the People's Liberation Army was a political army, and it remains so even to this day. The People's Liberation Army in China to this day is accountable to the party, uh, not the government. And it, and it is a political entity. And the bourgeoisie, you know, they maintain that the U.S. Army is not political at all. No politics whatsoever. They just they just enforce the law. They obey the president. No politics. Well, we know that's malarkey, right? You know, the, the, the U.S. military is full of indoctrination. You know, they teach them that the United States is the greatest country in the world, that communism is our enemy, that Islam is our enemy, etc. But in theory, the bourgeoisie claim that their armies have no politics. They're just enforcing the law. They're just they're just carrying out orders, defending the country. Uh, the People's Liberation Army made no bones about the fact that it was a political army and there was political education given to all the soldiers. Um, and that was a really important thing. And that the little red book, uh, the, you know, the, the iconic symbol of, of Mao Zedong thought, uh, originally it was blue and it was uh, it was a compilation. It was a selections of quotations from Mao Zedong that was given to the military as part of their political training. You would get your, your kit when you joined the military, your uniform, your, your gun, and you'd also have this little book. Uh, and eventually it, you know, it was turned red because that's more of a communist color and distributed among the civilian population. Um, the other thing that I think is important about all of this is that in addition to the fact that the People's Liberation Army was a political army, um, they really, really worked hard to combat corruption. Um, because, you know, there's a whole history of armies in, in China, warlords and even peasant revolutionary groups that they were known for plundering. 
Um, and, you know, you hear stories from the Long March where, you know, many of these villages, they would see the People's Liberation Army coming and they would cower in fear because they expected, oh, here comes an army and they're going to steal all our, our crops and food. They're going to, you know, sexually assault all, all the women here. They're going to, you know, and they didn't do any of that. Uh, the People's Liberation Army was notorious for how how well it, it followed a very strict code of conduct. You know, they you couldn't even take a spool of thread uh, you couldn't take one thing from from the peasants. You had to pay for everything and that they would insist on paying for anything they took from the peasantry. Never take anything from the people. Uh, no, uh, you know, you read the eight points of, of attention or I think it's called, what is it? The eight, eight points of discipline or something Then they, you know, this is a really important thing. And the fact that they enforced that was it really won the trust of the people. The fact that when the, the Red Army came to villages, um, they acted completely different than any other army had ever acted in China's history. Weren't taking bribes, weren't plundering the people, weren't being violent, weren't, weren't a, a force of corruption, but were instead following a very rigid moral code and, and how they conducted themselves. That really won the trust of millions of people. And I think that's a, a very important point. And that also it's important to point out that they were not, uh, this wasn't simply a, you know, honor system. Okay, we're not going to do this. They enforced it very rigidly. Uh, the, the People's Liberation Army executed a number of its, its own members. If you were caught, you know, stealing from the peasantry, if you sexually assaulted a woman in a village or something like that, they would institute the death penalty. Uh, and they, they did, you know, rigidly enforce these rules among their own soldiers in order to make sure that they maintained uh, and, and continued to practice what they preach and be and became and remained the army uh, that the people could trust. And I think that's one of the the most important strengths of Mao Zedong. And and then Mao Zedong had clearly, you know, he was born just you know thirty years after the Taiping uprising, which was the biggest civil war in human history. This mass civil war, this mass peasant uprising, uh, you know, that had taken place. And Mao had clearly studied it in great depth and learned from the failures of the Taiping uprising. Uh, not just in terms of its ideology, that was a, a Christian utopian uprising, but also in terms of its practice and how the Taiping army uh, that had fought uh, had fought you know, the emperor, how they they had failed. And part of the way they had failed was due to the fact that they were they were known to act like bandits and they were known to to rob people, et cetera. And that Mao he developed the the People's Liberation Army as this highly political and highly disciplined force that could really win the trust of the people. What do you think, Harpal? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, that is precise, precisely what happened. See, the one, one thing that proletarian revolutionaries and revolutionary Democrats can never be frightened of is telling the truth. I mean, if we say we want to establish dictatorship of the proletariat, there's nothing to be ashamed of that. It is the dictatorship of the majority over the exploiting minority. We can be open about it. The bourgeoisie, by its very nature, represents as it does a very minuscule portion of the population who are exploiters. They can't go around saying it's the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, now you'll follow us or else. If they did that, even the most dim-witted worker would say, hey, I'm not following that, I'm not following dictatorship, but they have to say, no, it's democracy, it's your government. You have put us in this place so that we can come and deceive you, beat you, and uh, misrepresent mis you, you know, they, 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 they have to, uh, they have to indulge in subterfuges because they represent a minority exploiting, exploiting class. The proletariat can afford to tell the truth. I mean, people suddenly find their blood go, gets cold, curdled, if you mention the dictator of the proletariat. 
every class, every state is a dictatorship of one class or the other. So the choice is yours. You want dictatorship of the proletariat or you want that of the bourgeoisie? Well, given that choice, very simply, I think most workers will say, I'd rather have the dictatorship of the proletariat. But of course, that's not how the question is put when you have elections. It all boils down to whether the interest rates are going to go up by a quarter percent or they're going to go down by a quarter, quarter percent. That is not the issue. The issue is who owns the means of production. You know, as somebody I was associated with for a few years of my life, used to say, we don't just want the loaf, we want the bakery. And, that, and that, that's really what the proletariat actually puts forward that we are fighting for this, not to get some short-term alleviation, although we're not against short-term alleviation, we're not against reforms, but reforms really are an outcome of revolutionary struggle. They don't come automatically. I know something about the history of Britain. Every single advance, even in the establishment of trade unions in this country, was done in the teeth of opposition from the bourgeoisie, and in the course of organizing those strikes, workers very often lost dozens of their members at the hands of the gun-toting, uh, hard-paid soldiers or policemen of, of, of the bourgeoisie. So it, 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 it can, can only be that way. Thanks, guys. Um, so the agrarian revolution period um, you said her piles started in 27, went up to 37. But of course, during that period also came the Long March. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that you guys would like to talk a little bit about that. It's a very kind of iconic moment in the history of the Chinese Revolution, in the history of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, you know, kind of a huge odyssey, if you like, of, of kind of determination and suffering and just tactical kind of brilliance uh, to save the revolution at a time when it was, when it was massively under pressure and threat. Well, soon after the betrayal of Chiang Kai-shek and the slaughter of communists, um, the Communist Party of China learned two lessons. One, without a people's army, the people have nothing. And secondly, the Communist Party had to provide the, 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 the leadership. And Soon after they were pushed out of the towns, they established themselves in the mountainous area of Jingangshan, as I said before. And straight away, two months later, they formed the People's Liberation Army in the August of that year, August 27. And the, they ruled a fairly large area. And the strength of the Communist Party came to 300,000, as indeed of the People's Liberation Army came to 300,000. It is then that Chiang Kai-shek launched his second extermination campaign and in 1934 forced them to vacate that area and that is when the Long March starts. And it starts in October 1934 and it finishes in November of the following year. It takes a whole year during which they had to travel through several, literally walk through several provinces. They had to fight lots of battles, battle battles on the way. They had to cross very difficult mountains and swamps and rivers, but they managed to do that. 
if you want to find a description of that, you can find it in Edgar Snow's book, Red Star Over, Over China. It gives you a fairly good good description description of of, of that 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 So they went from the mountainous mountainous area to establish a base in Yan'an, uh, in, in Shanxi Shanxi province, and Yan'an became really the headquarters, not only of the agrarian revolution but subsequently also of the Chinese revolution through the war of resistance against Japan. Now, when this long march is taking place. Already by 1931, Japan had started invading China. In 1932, they had established a puppet regime in, in, in Mongolia called the, the Manchu, Manchuko. So instead of the Communist Party gave a call of resistance against Japan, but Chiang Kai-shek wouldn't, 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 wouldn't agree, agree to that. So the Communist Party, while actually is leading its much dwindled forces, out of Jingangshan in the direction of uh, Yan'an. It's having to fight not only Chiang Kai-shek's forces, but also Jap Japanese forces. And it's a miracle that they were able to survive uh, and, and reach Yan'an with a strength of about 10,000 10, 10, pounds, 10,000 10, people. And that, 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 that's from where they built, built up their strength and became, of course, the center of the war of resistance against, against, against Japan. They forced Chiang Kai-shek to conclude an agreement with them that they will fight against, together will fight against Japan in the war, war of resistance. And such was the outrageous policy of Chiang Kai-shek that even his own army officers rebelled against it. Two generals, they have a similar name, Zhang and Zhang, Zhang. they captured at a place called Xi'an, Chiang Kai-shek held him prisoner and said to him, you will conclude an alliance with the Communist Party. Well, Chiang Kai-shek found their arguments very persuasive. And, and he concluded and the Communist Party sent Zhou Enlai to conduct negotiations. When he saw Zhou Enlai, Chiang Kai-shek of course knew him from earlier days. His face went white. That they're still going to order my execution. But they had better use for him because he still was the commander of several million strong army. So they wanted him to join them in, in fighting. And this was agreed to. And that was a brilliant victory for the Chinese line of resistance against Japanese, Jap Japanese uh, invaders and would be, would, be, would be conquerors of China. And everything that happened there helped the Chinese Communist Party because the Japanese conquered big towns. They were strong in towns. They didn't have the man for power to control rural areas. Now Chiang Kai-shek's strength was also in the towns. So Chiang Kai-shek's force was basically battered and finished off by the Japanese in the towns. But the Communist Party had far freer hand in the vast rural hinterlands of China to organize the peasants. So unwittingly, if you like, even the Japanese made a contribution to the Chinese re re revolution by actually assisting the Communist Party to organize people to resist, resist Japan. And of course, their guerrilla tactics were infuriating to the Japanese. They could f fight mobile and positional warfare because they had a modern armament, they had a modern, modern army. 
and they could defeat Chiang Kai-shek's forces, but they could never defeat the, the Chinese communists because they were everywhere and nowhere. You know, they came from nowhere. They concentrated their forces for attack, finished off, wiped out a few hundred of, of, of the of the Japanese aggressors, and disappeared in, in into the countryside. And in this way, they became the leading force in the war of resistance and subsequently, of course, in the war of liberation. Caleb. Wow. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things there that, that are worth commenting on. I mean, one of which uh, is that the Long March was one of the greatest turnarounds uh, that we've ever seen in military history. I mean, they were crushed. Uh, the Chinese Soviet Republic was surrounded. They retreated. I mean, it, it was completely crushed. It looked like everything was lost. And then in a few short years, uh, all of a sudden, the Chinese Communist Party is back and they're controlling territory again. And they're a force to be reckoned with. Um, and the fact that they could come back from such a, a bitter defeat uh, to to become a, a force to be reckoned with once again, so much so that they could force Chiang Kai-shek to have an alliance with them against the Japanese invaders, it really indicates a real organization and, all, and political strength um, that, that, again, shows that there was some, some brilliance in how they were put together. Um, I think there's a, a common narrative that we get in the West. It's like, oh, well, somebody was going to have to solve China's problems. And I guess the communists just happened to be there and they were the ones to do it. Well, no, it, it, the history of the Chinese Communist Party really reveals that there was some huge, huge tactical brilliance, some huge ideological strength uh, that enabled them to do what they did. It's not simply a matter of them being there. And that also accompanies a lot of historical revisionism. I mean, the Internet is full of, of historical revisionism from Taiwan, uh, trying to claim that Mao didn't fight the Japanese invaders, uh, that Chiang Kai-shek uh, did all the fighting by himself. And, and this is all just, you know, not based in reality whatsoever. I mean, it just doesn't match the facts. Uh, the Chinese Red Army, uh, the Eighth Route Army, they were called at that time, when they were fighting the Japanese invaders. They were the, the heroes of the world. I mean, Edgar Snow's book, Red Star Over China, was a best-selling book in Britain and the United States. Everyone was just in awe of the amazing victories that the People's Liberation Army, then called the Eighth Route Army, was pulling off against Japan. Um, they were kind of, you know, you know, just, just the symbol of anti-fascism. Edgar Snow wrote a very good book during this time called People on Our Side, uh, that showed uh, how the Red Army organized and what they did, and that uh, they were key in defeating the Japanese invaders. Yes, there were more casualties on the side on the among the KMT, but when it came to playing the decisive role, uh, the uh, the you know the Red Army was was key. I mean, and they they were known for you know being much more heroic and much more willing to sacrifice. Um, it's also important to note that uh, that the the funding. Uh, that that was given to Chinese forces by the United States during the Second World War to fight Japan. Almost all of it went to the KMT. Uh, it did not go to the Eighth Route Army and the Communists, so much so that uh, the Chinese Communist Party asked uh, the United States Communist Party to criticize uh, Washington for this. And there's a, a kind of a famous incident during the Second World War. You know, Earl Browder was the leader of the U.S. Communist Party. He dissolved the U.S. Communist Party, changed it to the Communist Political Association. Um, and during the war, um, you know, uh, the Chinese Communist Party asked the U.S. communists uh, to make a statement uh, and criticize the U.S. government for not giving more aid to the Chinese communist armies and their resistance. So Earl Browder gave a radio speech 
uh, and urged uh, Roosevelt and, and the government in Washington, D.C. to give more funding to the Chinese communists and their fight against Japan. Uh, and after Earl Browder made this speech, he was called to Washington, D.C., uh, and figures in the U.S. State Department uh, forced him to apologize. And so Earl Browder apologized for, for making this statement and said, oh, this must be a mis miscommunication. And he, and he said that, uh, that this wasn't true and the Chinese communists were just in, in, in horror. Why are the leaders of the Communist Party of the United States saying that we're liars <laughs> you know, and repeating uh, Washington's propaganda? And ultimately, when Earl Browder was removed from the leadership of the Communist Party of the United States, um, William Z. Foster, the leader of the Communist Party, who replaced him, who'd been, you know, he was kind of the, the you know, the, you know, the well-respected leader of the American working class. Uh, he received a personal telegram from Mao Zedong celebrating the overthrow of, of Earl Browder, um, and that uh, that kind of, you know, the the confusion around who was getting the aid uh, and, and who was getting the aid to fight the Japanese invaders. Uh, that was a very decisive in, in kind of the internal politics of the Communist Party of the, of the United States, especially in, in leading up to the overthrow of Earl Browder, which I think is very, very interesting. So, um, but yes, I mean, I mean, it's just the, the Chinese Red Army, they were the heroes of the whole world during this time. Red Star over China, people on our side. Um, you watch, there's some old uh, World War II U.S. military training films, uh, The Battle of China. Uh, the Battle of Russia, where, I mean, it's very clear that the army that everyone was just looking to and watching achieve these miraculous, amazing victories on the battlefield, it was the communist army that was doing that. It was not the KMT army that was doing that. The KMT army was known for corruption, for robbing people, for plundering villages. They would throw away the lives of, of the peasants who joined their army, you know, just as much as they possibly could. Um, they were not they were not the real decisive fighting force on the battlefield against Japan. I think you the theme that comes up again and again when we are discussing this is is that theme of um, the masses when you're when you're making a revolution with for and by the masses it has a different morality a different level of commitment a different level of heroism you know people are prepared to sacrifice much more there's so much at stake and it's for them for their people for the masses um people commit to it and feel differently about it and one aspect or one illustration of that if you like is seen on the long march you know the way that you know, that demanded so much from people. So many people died along the way. Not only that, but people who had started the journey, either pregnant or with small children or babies in arms, you know, actually had to give babies away to peasants in villages as they passed and say, please bring up this child because we can't take care of it. We have to move too quickly. We don't have what the child needs. And most of them never saw their children again. They didn't know where they'd been left. They didn't know what happened to them. They just, but they were of the peasants and the peasants were with them and they just had to trust that, you know, the children would be brought up amongst their people and it would it would be okay. And it was a, a sacrifice for the greater good. That In that moment, you're not thinking of yourself or your individual child, you're thinking of the whole cause. And that really symbolizes, I think, the mentality and the morality of the collective at a time of, you know, class war. Absolutely. Um, I, I believe two of Mao's own children were, had to be given away uh, 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 like like that from a, from a um, from a previous marriage because it was not possible to look after them. Conditions were so harsh. Conditions were so difficult. So if you could find some peasant family that would take them, at least these kids will have a chance to survive and hopefully live and and grow to be 
use, use, useful individuals. But the thing is, it's a most difficult sacrifice to make for a parent to give up their children. And if they did, you can see how passionately they felt about the cause of liberation of the, of the Chinese people. Their whole life depended on it. They were not fighting somebody else's battle. They were not mercenaries paid $50 or whatever it is to, to fight, or $1,000 a day to go and fight in Ukraine, right? They, are, they were people who felt for the cause and they were fighting for it and were prepared to lay down their own lives and even more importantly, their children's lives for the, for the cause of liberation. And the Chinese revolution is associated with tremendous sacrifice. The Chinese lost, I mean, really uncountable millions in, in, in the war, 45 million, probably more. But they did, fighting against the Japanese, against Chiang Kai-shek, something like at least 35 million and prob probably more. I mean, the Chinese, ever since they were, began to be colonized after the defeat in the first Opium War of 1840, they rose up again and again. Caleb has mentioned the Taiping Rebellion. That lasted 12 years. During, it was the largest rebellion at that time in Asia and it apparently claimed the lives of about 20 million Chinese. It was eventually crushed by the um, dying Qing dynasty and of course the various imperialist, imperialist country, countries. Same happened with the Boxer Rebellion which started in 1899 and finished in 1901, again at the hands of various imperialist powers that, 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 that crushed it. Unlike the Taiping, which was a religious movement, the leader of the Taiping Rebellion even thought he was the younger brother of Jesus Christ. And he wanted to actually replace the corrupt Qing dynasty by a government which represented the Christian teaching of Jesus, Jesus Christ. The Boxers, on the other hand, hated the foreigners you know, the imperialists, what they had done to China. So they, they burnt churches, they killed priests, uh, you know, the Christ, Christian priests, whether they be Chinese or whether they, they, they be foreigners. They attacked consulates, they ripped up railway lines and did various things. That lasted a couple of years. Then after that, you have the May the 4th movement, which was in the uh, in the wake of the Versailles Treaty following the, the First World War, when in fact the powers that be gave away the provinces belonging to China, which had been captured by Germany, now defeated, not to the Chinese, but, but to the Japanese. And it unleashed a tremendous movement, especially among, among the students. But all these movements are failures because at the time the Chinese still wanted to learn from the West and in the end, Mao Zedong said, well, we realized that we can't learn from them. The teacher is beating us up every, every time we want to learn from him. And it's the October Revolution, the salvos of October Revolution that brought socialism to China, that brought communism to China. Before that, Mao Zedong says, we Chinese had never heard, not only of Lenin and Stalin, we'd never heard of Marx and Engels. We knew nothing about Marxism. But through the, China, the 
the, the, the Russian Revolution. We learned that. Russia, for example, disclaimed all the concessions that had been granted by China to the, to, to, to the, to the Tsarist uh, ruling, ruling circles. They gave up that. That electrified the Chinese population. It never happened that imperialist countries would give up their concessions in China. But the Russians were the, were the, the Bolsheviks were the, were the first one, ones, ones to, do, to, to, do, to do that. And that's really uh, in, in, in some what happened. Can I just come back to um, the anti-fascist war? Because uh, something that's really noticeable is, you know, if you live in the West, the anti-fascist war, World War II, is always taken as being from the day when, you know, Britain declared war on Germany or Germany invaded Poland or whatever at the beginning of September 1939. And it goes on till sort of VE Day, or if you're lucky, VJ Day, 1946. Um, but of course, the Chinese dates for the anti-fascist war uh, predate that by a, a long period. Um, and I'm, I believe, in fact, they date the beginning of their anti-fascist war from to 1933. Is that right? Someone tell me. I think they've got 14 years of anti-fascist, anti-Japanese war. Uh, so for them, World War II was 14 years. They lost, them, they lost more than any other country, uh, but their casualties are never mentioned when we talk about the casualties of World War II. I mean, we spend a lot of time we communists, you know, in Europe, and even I'm sure in the States, you know, trying to remind people that in fact, it was the Soviet Union that was on the front line of the battle in Europe. But of course, it was China that was on the front line of the battle in Asia. And um, it's almost never talked about um, the great sacrifices that the Chinese people made in the fight against fascism, the fight against um, Japan, Japanese occupation of their country. Um, so, you know, as you said, Rapal, when they started the anti-fascist war, they were also fighting the nationalists on their own side, the Kuomintang. They had to fight to enable their forces to be combined and facing the same direction. They did achieve that, you know, very important alliance so that all the Chinese people were facing the same way and fighting the Japanese. Um, but it was still a very, a very tough war that took a huge number of casualties. And the Japanese occupation of China, it still is a heavy scar on the country, right? It was vicious, vicious occupation. I mean, in, in a few days, two or three weeks time, mm -hmm. the, the the Japanese massacred 300,000 people in, in, in Nanjing. And that incident is known to every Chinese man, woman, child, whatever their age, whatever their background, it's known to them. They, they know what, what Japan did. Japan is portrayed as really the followers of, of Gautam Buddha. They, they were not like that. Their whole past has been whitewashed because it suits the uh, NATO countries and Western imperialists and especially US imperialism to portray them in that way. They will tell you how many people died in the Great Leap Forward, but they'll never tell you how many people died fighting against Japanese aggression in, 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 in China. And the Chinese fought against that and indirectly contributed to the victory in Western Europe as well, because they kept the Japanese busy fighting the Chinese when actually they could have joined Mussolini, Hitler, uh, uh, etc., in waging war in Western Europe. So Japan was kept particularly busy, and it became even more possible when after. Uh, 
before Soviet Union was invaded, before months before that, the Soviet Union signed a treaty of neutrality with Japan. So he didn't have to worry about, about the Eastern, Eastern, Eastern Front that, that much. And of course, the Japanese helped this war effort very much by making the mistake of attacking Pearl Harbor. American, two months before America joined the war, or three months before, Harry Truman, who was later on to become president of the United States, said, we should help Germany if it looked Russia was winning, and we should help Russia, if we thought Germany was we uh, was winning, in this way we'll weaken Germany and we'll finish off Bolshevik so, Soviet Union. That was their position, but of course history wrote the chapter in a slightly different manner manner from that which was intended to be written by the imperialist powers, principally Britain, America, and 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 and, and France. So. Americans were therefore obliged to fight fight against Japan and obliged to join the Second World War. Although, of course, on, on the Western Front, they delayed as much as possible right up to the summer of 1944, opening a second front, leaving the Soviet Union to confront the might of the German forces and their allies from, from, from Europe. So the history is being rewritten by the imperialist past particularly since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And although we sometimes appear to be a voice in the wilderness, we must hold aloft the banner of truth and we must bring to, to, truth. Plato said 2,500 years ago, no one is hated more than someone who tells the truth. Yes, we are in that line of business, not because we want to be hated, but we are hated precisely because we speak the truth. It's not even particularly revolutionary to say that the Chinese and the Soviets made the greatest contribution to defeat of Nazism. This was admitted to in the aftermath of the Second World War, even by the principal imperialist countries. It was admitted by Churchill, it was admitted by Roosevelt. Don't worry about the French because they, they joined the Nazis to and, and be on their side Second Second World War anyway. So this was admitted to, but of course they keep on writing. And now suddenly from being Uncle Joe, Stalin had become a second Hitler, only worse. Hitler was not as methodical. He was not as cruel. He was not as scientific about killing others as Stalin was. And so that, that's how they write. You have got various lick spitters like Anthony Beaver, right, writing about Second World War. And it's a total falsification because falsification of history is something that gets these writers not only publicity but gives them a fair amount of money. Their books which are third class lacking in historical evidence suddenly become best bestsellers and that's that, 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 that's what they seek and that's what they get. I'm sure, I'm sure that's Beaver's next project, the history of the Chinese revolution. Go on Caleb. I think we need to, to cut it here, actually, if possible, uh, because I, I have other obligations. So I'm going to. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, 
and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.